Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I'd like to say, first of all, on behalf of my wife, Rhoda, and me, we moved up here in October from uh, the cold state of Arizona, and we have been welcomed warmly by this church. We love this church. We've gotten to know the elders and the deacons, and they're all great men and a lot of great ladies here. So thank you for being so kind and welcoming to us. Uh, it's felt like home up here, and we didn't, we didn't know anybody when we came up here except our, our daughter and her husband and our granddaughter, which is why we came up to begin with. So today, um, let's begin with prayer as we begin the study of God's Word. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to enlighten our minds and hearts today through your Holy Spirit. Please give us grace to receive your Word with reverence, and humility so that we might understand your truth. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, I just was curious reading through this passage the last couple of weeks. And as you can see in the bulletin, it's a lengthy passage. It's a complicated passage. It's a little scary. And it has quite a bit of the, the wow factor in it. Um, how many have never heard a sermon on Daniel 7? Raise your hand. You know, there's quite a few here that haven't. Well, this is your first time. And for those of you that have before, maybe it'll be a little bit different. But there's a reason why it's not preached very frequently, and that's because it's a hard text. It's difficult. It's challenging. It's got language we don't normally use. But we know that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and, in, and training in righteousness. That includes Daniel. So today we begin the second half of the book of Daniel. Brian finished up last week with chapter 6. I kind of wanted that chapter myself, but <laughs> such is life. And uh, <laughs> inherited chapter 7. But Daniel and Brad have done a wonderful job of taking us through this book. And the more you read of Daniel, the more you love Daniel. What a man. What a man of God. So we begin this second half. The first half was largely biographical about Daniel's life and what a life Daniel lived. You know, last week, when Bri I was thinking when, when, Brian, when Brian taught last week, Daniel was lowered into the lion's den when he was about 80-some-odd years old. That's pretty brutal. I don't know how many 80-year-olds there are here, but I don't think too many are ready to be lowered into a lion's den. But that's the kind of man Daniel was. Interestingly, it's written in Aramaic. And if you remember, how many of you saw The Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson film? A lot of you saw that. You know what that was filmed in? At least the words of Jesus was Aramaic. Because Aramaic was the royal language of the court of Babylon. Daniel and all his buddies learned how to speak Aramaic. It was the language that was spoken in Galilee, the region that Jesus grew up in. So Jesus, it was basically his language. That ties Daniel and Jesus together there. And this chapter begins with the longest apocalyptic chapter in the entire Old Testament. The word apocalypse, you've heard it quite a bit. The word does not occur in Scripture at all. You won't find it in the Bible. It's a term that we use... It's a Greek word meaning revelation or disclosure. It's like opening a curtain in a closed room. You see things that you wouldn't otherwise see. It refers to a pattern of thought or a form of literature 
that deals with future judgment. We call that eschatology. What's going to happen? It's filled with vision, with, with vivid visions, with dreams, with imagery, and symbols of fantastic animals and beasts, things that you can't even imagine, that are indescribable, literally. Battles on a grand scale. It teaches lessons using mental pictures. You know, if any of you have taught in the lower classes, what kind of books do kids love? Picture books. Because pictures convey a lot of meaning. That's why God gave Daniel these images. It, 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 it's terrific meaning. Historically, God's persecuted church, even today, turns to Daniel and Revelation for comfort and for reassurance that God is in control and that God ultimately will conquer evil. There are 58 New Testament verses that cite or allude to Daniel 7. 22 of them are found in Revelation. So there's no reason, there's no question about why there's a correlation of Daniel and Revelation. There's a lot of citations from Daniel that John uses. And it's used throughout the New Testament. These books have baffled interpreters through the ages and have given rise to many different schemes of interpretation. Perhaps you've been in a church where you saw a timeline or a chart or scary pictures of Daniel and these beasts. But we're going to try today to steer a course right down the middle, rightly dividing the word of truth. We're going to let the Bible interpret itself, and so you'll need to have a Bible handy in addition to your bulletin. We're going to try to make the plain things the main things, and the main things the plain things. After all, God didn't give us his word, and particularly he didn't give us these books of prophecy to confuse us, but to instruct and to encourage us. So I hope this is encouraging this morning. There are two main themes in this chapter. I'll repeat these a couple of times in the sermon today, so I'll try to keep these in your mind. The first theme, verses 1 through 14, is who is ultimately in control? And control is the ultimate issue, isn't it? Don't we all want to be in control? We'll talk about that more. Control, the word means power, dominion. The word dominion is used later in this text. In the, Ara in the Aramaic language, it basically means to make one his master. To make yourself your own master. That's what it comes down to. Who's in charge? I happened to look yesterday and I noticed that the number one movie on the marquees this weekend is Jurassic World, and you don't know the title, Fallen Kingdom. I haven't seen it and don't plan to, but nothing against Jurassic Park, but that could be an apropos text for today. The Fallen Kingdom. My, how the mighty have fallen. I did a little bit of research this week on apocalyptic movies. I kind of like them. I've seen quite a few of them. Um, some are good, some aren't so good, but maybe you've seen a few yourself. But if you go to, to the, uh, you Google it, there are literally hundreds of movies about end times and about the ap apocalyptic scenes. And the earliest apocalyptic movie I found this was interesting was a Danish movie done in 1916. And that was just kind of when movies were getting going, right? You'll never guess the title. The End of the World. 
And people then were concerned about, you might guess this, I don't think anyone here was around then, Halley's Comet. Now it's hard to imagine that people would be scared out of their gourd by a comet, but they were. It's a very frightening event at that time. A movie critic wrote this about apocalyptic movies. He said, although often set in a distant future, these spectacles tend to address the subconscious demons that we're grappling with right now. It's no wonder why people want to see these. People are struggling with demons, folks. We all do. But regardless of what form these apocalyptic movies take, the end of the world as we know it has never been far from our thoughts. And that's the writer, a movie critic. And I think he's right on. So if you like to take your Bible or your, your iPad or your iPhone, or the text is in the passage, but we're going to jump around a little bit in Scripture today. But we'll begin with Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. In other words, he journaled his dream. He wrote a summary of his dream. Now we jump back. This is not chronologically in order. Brian preached last week and the king that was in power with the lion's den was Darius, the, the Medo-Persian king. Now we go back to Belshazzar, the king that <clears throat> took over the throne when his father, perhaps grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar died. So where Belshazzar became the king, he was a foolish, foolish man. He did not acknowledge the true God like his dad did. Remember Nebuchadnezzar at the end? He acknowledged God. He worshipped and praised God. He gave glory to God. Belshazzar didn't do that. He was a foolish man. I think his reign lasted two or three years at the most. <clears throat> Brought shame to his people, but it was under the rule of him, a brutal pagan king that God gave Daniel this vision to give his people hope, to give the Israelites hope. And today, folks, I hope that you get hope from this sermon because that's God's intent for his people always, to give us hope. Dreams are frequently used in Scripture. Anybody have a dream last night? I happened to, I don't know why, but woke up at 2 and told my wife I had a scary dream of all things. And, uh, but they kind of stick, with, stick in our minds, don't they? Sometimes they're quite revealing. God called to Jacob in a vision. Remember what God said? Jacob, Jacob. Jacob said, here am I. Joseph dreamed of the sheaves. Remember the Pharaoh dreamed of the seven lean cows and the seven fat cows? Job had terrifying visions. And Paul and Ananias and Peter in the New Testament, they had dreams. In Daniel 2.22, we're told that God reveals deep and hidden things. Nobody knows about our dreams, but God. We're told He knows what's in the darkness. You can't hide from God. Even in our dream lives, our dream worlds, we can't hide from God. God knows. God created dreams. In verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night... And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now remember, this is symbolic language here. The four winds are like the four points of the compass. If you look at, a, look at your weather app on your iPhone or on your 
whatever you have, you'll see northeast. The wind's always blowing from one direction or another. Or it could be north-northwest, maybe two directions at the most. But in this scene, you have all four winds blowing at the same time. Hard to imagine. Represents the whole cosmos. The sea represents chaos, uncertainty, danger, death. In ancient mythology, the sea is where sea monsters came from, right? This scene is one of all winds coming from all four directions, creating a roiling sea. It's really the perfect storm. In verse 3, and four beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. And these beasts were represented throughout the Old Testament. In Hosea, the Lord says, describing how he, the Lord, will deal with the enemies of Israel. I says this, so I'm to them like a lion, like a leopard, I'll lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. So there's God describing these same animals. Only he's the animals in that, in that case, destroying the enemies of God's people. So these four beasts then, what do they represent? They represent four kingdoms, four empires. In verse 4, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. The lion was used in other Old Testament passages to represent Babylon. And if you go to the Louvre Museum in Paris, I've never been there, some of you have, you can see one of the ancient gates of the city of Babylon with the image of a sphinx-like figure. It has the body of a lion, has wings, and it has a man's head. Daniel says, Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a, and the mind of a man was given to it. What does that sound like? If you go back to what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, he lost his mind. He was made to eat grass like a beast of the field. And he had his mind restored by God. So that imagery fits perfectly with Babylon. And five, and behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Now, I don't know how many of you have seen bears or Kodiak bears or grizzly bears. They are frightening beasts. I think they're faster than horses. Uh, none of us would like to face one. So the image of, of a, this vicious bear, um, it probably represents Medo-Persia. There's a well-known animal in that area called a Syrian bear, and it gets up to 500-some-odd pounds. It's a huge bear, a frightening bear. This prob the three ribs probably represent three kingdoms, lesser kingdoms. So here we have what is probably Persia, and Persia conquered Babylon. So it was sequential, and then next we come to six. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads. And dominion, there's that word, power, control, dominion was given to it. Now most Bible scholars believe that this represents Alexander the Great in Greece. Alexander the Great was an interesting man himself. In just 10 years, he conquered the known world all the way from North Africa, the Mediterranean, all the way to the Punjab region of India. Now, that's a long expanse. Very, very brilliant. 
And it says here he had four heads. Uh, he was a, probably one of the best military strategists in history. Uh, I read that he took a force of 30,000 Greek soldiers and defeated an army of 800,000 Persians. That's really something, isn't it? He was quite a, quite a great general. But his empire just lasted about 10 years. He, was, he defeated Darius III and the Persian Empire in 330 B.C. So here's Daniel. This vision is going out into the future, many centuries out into the future. Then in 7, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Imagine that. Ten horns on a beast. It doesn't have much form. It's not like any animal you've ever seen. This fourth beast, it probably represents the Roman Empire. The iron teeth represented power. Pretty similar to the iron legs and feet of the image that Brad preached about in chapter 2. Remember that? Head of gold, chest of silver. Belly of bronze, legs of iron. So in sequence, that probably is the Roman Empire. In verse 8, Daniel says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Horns signify power. If you've ever seen a YouTube of... Two rams butting heads in the forest, they make a terrific sound, a terrific impact. So horns are, signify power. Ten is power times ten. So unbelievable power. This little horn is a puzzling figure in history. It's hard to interpret. I don't know who the little horn is, honestly. There's a lot of disagreement among commentators. It could be that it was one of the Roman Caesars. It could be that it's the Antichrist. But what's plain here is that this little horn is hostile to God, hates God, and that there will be increasing hostility toward God's people until the end. So now we have a change in scenes in this, in this vision. We go from a disordered, chaotic world of beasts and destruction to a heavenly a heavenly picture here in verse 9. Daniel, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. How orderly is that? Place the thrones in order. Took the seat for the Ancient of Days. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. Well, white signifies purity, and it signifies dignity. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. That's quite a scene, isn't it? What does fire represent here? Fire is destructive, isn't it? Put wood on the fire and it burns up the wood, right? But it's also purifying. The refiner's fire is purifying. So it has a dual symbolism there. In verse 10, a thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Now, this is a courtroom scene with a judge. Millions served. I got my calculator out to calculate how much that was. 
but at the minimum, it's millions, millions that were serving him and hundreds of millions that were in his courtroom. And just think about that scene for a while. Now, how many of you have been before a judge? Maybe a few of you. I have. It's, it's just a judge with 10 or 12 people in the room is pretty intimidating. Imagine hundreds of millions in this courtroom. Little wonder that Daniel was taken aback. In verse 11, I looked. Then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with the fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. They lost their power. But their lives were prolonged for a season and time. Now remember, Daniel's looking into the future here. It doesn't mean that all Persians and all Babylonians and all the Romans went away, but their power was taken away. So it's kind of like Daniel's given the trailer of a movie here, a telescope way into the future where he sees the eventual destruction of all kingdoms, indeed, all the enemies of God, because God is in control. I gave quite a bit of thought to this whole idea of control this week, and, and I will be straight up with you. I am a very controlling person myself. Full disclosure, maybe some of you are, are like I am. Um, my wife will tell you the first thing, one of the things I hate to do is fly we go, to the air, we go to the airport, and I know I'm going to start losing control little by little by little. The first thing they go, you take your shoes off, and then you go through, and they take your bag apart. And, and then the last time I went, I had a, I had a gentleman uh, that got very close to me at a personal and intimate level that I, I hope I don't go through again, but no control over that. It's up to them. And then you get on the airplane, and my wife will tell you that the first thing I do when I get on a plane because I like control. I like to peek in the cockpit and see who's at the controls. Does the pilot and co-pilot, do they look reliable? Are they trustworthy? Yeah. Do they look like they're battle-hardened? You know, we got on a plane once and it looked like a member of the Rolling Stones was flying. And I thought, I don't know about this flight. We made it, but uh, I still like to look in there. Not that it makes any difference. Well, a little bit. Then I came across this story. Some of you might be familiar with this if you saw the film Sully. I didn't see it, but I'm going to now. Captain Chesley Sullenberger. Imagine yourself being on this flight. On January 15, 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off from LaGuardia on its way to Seattle with a stopover in Charlotte. Shortly after takeoff, it struck a huge flock of Canadian geese, and it lost all power. All engines went out. There was only one man in control that day. That was Sully. One of the passengers recounted, I listened to his, I listened to his testimony, he said, I knew we were going to die. You just don't take off and then start coming back over the Hudson River. This is crazy. We're over Manhattan. So he tried to text his wife and let her know, I'm going down, honey. I love you. Then he said, I heard a calm voice from the cockpit say, brace for impact. And he said, that's all it was, pretty much all it took to kind of calm him down. Let him know, hey, there's going to be impact, but I'm in control. Now here's what the past, here's the backstory of Sully. Here's what the passengers didn't know. He was an Air Force Academy graduate. He, graduated, he was a valedictorian of his high school. In 1973, when he graduated, he received the Outstanding Cadet and Airmanship Award. 
as the class's top flyer. Now that's pretty good. And he went on to be an experienced jet fighter in T-38s and A-4s in the Vietnam era jets. So as we brace, use that story as a springboard, as we brace for the impacts in life, and there will be impacts. This week, perhaps you had some impacts in your life. Every day you wake up and you wonder, I wonder what's going to happen because it's always something, right? Brian relayed to me a story this morning, a, a terrible story about brutality right here in Boise. We, we don't have control, but we know, we know who does have control, and we can take peace in knowing that God is in control regardless of what happens to us. He controls our destiny. In verse 13, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. Well, this son of man phrase is a particularly powerful and important phrase. It's what I would call a pivot point in all of human history. It's a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's the key to understanding redemptive history. Because it was Jesus' preferred way of referring to himself. You see, he gave son of man a name. He did so 80 times in the Gospels. He called himself the Son of Man. Not so much Christ, not so much Lord, but the Son of Man, and there's a reason for that. And it's always capitalized when Jesus uses it because the translation in the Aramaic here is just a human being. Daniel said, I saw a human being in the fire. Daniel didn't know it was Jesus. We do because Jesus told, tells us that that was him. In Mark 14, we read, and the high priest, remember the high priest questioning Jesus? He said, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you'll see the Son of Man, that's me, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That goes doesn't it? The only one, not even his disciples use that phrase, the only other man in, or woman in, in, in the New Testament that uses that same phrase in the same way was Stephen as he was being stoned. Stephen said in Acts 7, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, that was Stephen, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man, Jesus. He saw the Son of Man standing where? At the right hand of God. There's a great theologian I love to read. His name is Sinclair Ferguson. He writes this about the man of God, the Son of Man. In Daniel 7, there's more to Jesus' use of the title Son of Man than a simple stress on his humility in distinction from, <clears throat> from his deity. The picture of the vision is one of unparalleled triumph, magnificence, and indeed glory. The Son of Man is seen coming to the throne of the majesty on high, the Ancient of Days, and receiving authority that His Father gives Him. 
over the entire cosmos. The rationale for this title can't be that it stresses humility rather than dignity. Somehow both are involved because Jesus is the real man. Martin Luther used the expression in a great hymn. He called Jesus the proper man. He's the man as man was created to be. He's the man who fulfills destiny. In Acts 1, we're told, when he had made purification, that's Jesus, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we see scripture after scripture of scripture of Jesus' rightful place next to his father. Because Jesus was the second Adam. Remember, Adam was given dominion too. Adam had an opportunity, but he decided to establish instead his own kingdom. Adam wanted power and control, and so did Eve, thereby bringing condemnation on all of us, on all mankind. Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve so that we may inherit what really belongs to him. So who rules? King Jesus. And the second theme today is how does this story end? Daniel's vision is so real to Daniel. He actually steps out of this dream into this courtroom here. It's, it's amazing. He becomes one in the crowd. Now, I don't know how he picked one of hundreds of millions of angels to ask, but he did. He grabbed one, and he asked the angel, tell me the truth. I, I just don't understand this. 15, verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was and within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying and its with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze in which devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with his feet. And about the ten horns, Daniel wanted to know, what about the horns that were on his head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than his companions. The greatest warring king in history, that's what Daniel's asking about. Verse 21, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them for a time. Now Daniel, like any of us would have been, was troubled by this fourth beast because it really didn't have a form like a bear or a leopard or a lion. And especially this little horn. But what it's plain here, the plain thing here is that the little horn attacks the people of God and continually persecutes them. Folks, we're always in a fight. We're in the battle. That's why Paul says, fight the good fight, and it's not against other people. It's against this satanic force. But it all comes to close here in verse 22, until, so this little horn has as a dominion, until the ancient of days came. And, was, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. It's you and me. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, 
There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out. Now that word wear out means to persecute, enslave. He'll wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given to his hand, but only for a time and times and half a time. Now we have the entrance of the judge again in this scene. Verse 26, but the court, not the little horn, the court shall sit in judgment. And his dominion, that little horn, shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom, here's the good news, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Imagine that. Think about that. The people of God will inherit the kingdom. Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 22, and I, very similar language, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my Father conferred a kingdom on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones. Now when I read this passage, I thought, man, not only am I going to have a house in heaven that the Lord's gone to prepare for me, but I'm going to have my own throne. It's a great thought. And we're going to eat and drink at the Lord's table today to get a foretaste of what heaven's really going to be like. So to confer means to assign, to make a covenant with. So ours, you see, my friends, is a kingdom sealed with the covenant promise of Jesus. In verse 27, His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve Him. Here is the end of the matter. The dream comes to a close. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. The, the translation is, I went white as a, basically white as a ghost. But I kept the matter in my heart. I, I think it never left Daniel's heart. So this is, this is how the story ends. This is how his story ends. In victory and glory with us, with you and me, brother and sister, sharing the heavenly kingdom as full heirs. We all get equal shares. It's hard to believe. Well, let's you and me, let's us keep this glorious matter in our hearts, just as Daniel did. So as we go out today, what do we do with all this that we've read and studied this morning? Well, one, the Bible gives us the whole, pl the whole plan of history. It lays it all out. Daniel gives this grand vision. God wants us to know what's going to happen to us, what he's prepared for us. The Bible lights our path. It gives us all truth. It gives us stability. Brian and I were talking about before about something that happened here in town. and People want stability. I want stability. You want stability. God gives us eternal stability. So treasure God's word. Secondly, Daniel's vision reveals this whole panorama of heaven, a backdrop against which we're all playing on this stage for short periods of time, but it's an eternal backdrop. God's purposes are good news for us. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not God's word. It is eternal truth. 
Third, we only know our purpose when we know Jesus personally as Lord and Savior. You can't find purpose by looking to the world. It brings only temporary happiness, temporary purpose. But you can find it. And you, and you can't find it in Eastern religions or New Age teaching because you don't look into yourself and find purpose. That's a fool's errand. By more enlightenment, you can only find it in the person of Jesus, the Son of Man. His gift was made possible by his own redeeming death on the cross. You won't find happiness in your own kingdom any more than Adam and Eve did not. But only by embracing Jesus, putting all of your trust, all of your hope in him alone. Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, Don't be afraid, my little flock, for it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Amen.